Great, it's 10 o'clock, so we're gonna get started. Welcome everyone, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Frad. I'm the Assistant Program Director for Trisha, and I'm very excited to have everyone here for our next class in Your Name Shall Be Great, The Abraham Narrative with Rabbi David Silber. Uh, we have been working our way through uh, the story of Abraham for the past number of months. Last week, we were discussing chapters 17 and 18, the announcements of Yitzchak's birth to both Sarah and Abraham, the similarities and the differences between them. That's where we're gonna pick up again this week at the beginning of uh, Genesis chapter 18. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Hope you all had a uh, meaningful Purim under the circumstances. Okay, mediocre. The, um, okay, I'd like to this morning look at chapter 18 of Breshit. Uh, we started last week and uh, just to pick up and to focus in on a couple of, I think, significant elements of, this, of these stories. The chapter begins by saying, Vayera Hashem Elav. So the first pasuk of chapter 18 says that God appears to Abraham in Elonei Mamre. He was sitting by the door of the tent, Rashi says, to see if there were strangers perhaps who need something help. Ramban says, because the door of tents that are built in the desert tend to be cool. If you know how to build, uh, which is true, that's the coolest place. In any event, he's sitting by the door, God appears. And then the question that the, well, the question is self-evident, but medievals raise this question, the Rambam, the Ramban, discussions about this. What is the relationship between the first verse and the continuation? Because the next pasuk says, so what does it mean God appeared to him? And then Avram picks up his eyes and three people are standing, standing close to him, near him. And he rushes out to greet them, rushes from his, the gate of the tent and he bows down to them. And he please, says, please, in Pastor Gimel, in Nomatsati Chem Bienecha, not Tavarmi Arabdecha, Yukachnomi Yadmayim. So he invites them in with hospitality, and we'll discuss the hospitality in a moment. But what is the relationship between the first verse and the continuation? So Rashi, quoting the Midrash, suggests that the two of them are not, in other words, God appeared to Avraham, says Rashi, because Avraham had just undergone circumcision. Rashi presumes that the previous chapter, which ends with Abraham circumcising himself and members of his family, that this chapter, our chapter, is simply a continuation. Maybe it's the next day, maybe it's three days later, shortly thereafter. So he's recovering. It's 100 years old, recovering from the operation, uh, the procedure, or whatever. Uh, in any event, and then strangers are there. So Avram leaves God's presence, as it were, to uh, take care of the stranger. And the Medrash sees in this a great lesson that and God seems to not object to this at all. So Abraham says to God, excuse me, I have to do a mitzvah, I have to welcome strangers. So Hachnasat Rachim is such an important mitzvah that it even supersedes the encounter with God. 
That's what Rashi understands is whether this is the plain meaning of the text or Midrash is a good question. In any event, the plain meaning I suggest is, is different. Namely, that God appeared to Abraham who was sitting by the gate of his tent and what follows actually is the way in which God appeared to Abraham. God appears to Abraham through these three strangers, people, messengers, angels, call them what you wish. But this is the way in which God makes God known, appears, reveals God to, uh, to Abraham. The Rambam certainly takes it that way because the Rambam argued in very Rambam-like fashion that this entire story is basically some kind of a dream. Not that these things actually happen, but the Rambam presumes this to be a dream. And that's the Rambam's general view of prophecy, etc. And he says this not only about the story over here, but he says this about other stories. Jacob's wrestling with the angel doesn't really happen, but it's happening in, in Jacob's mind. To which the Ramban asks the question, if it's happening in his, in his mind, how come when he wakes up, he is uh, limping? That's a very good question. But anyway, that's the Rambam's view. But I think leaving, leaving the Rambam's view about prophecy out, etc., one can read, I think, the Chumash, and I think it's the most plausible reading, personally, that this is the way in which God appears to Abraham. These three people, Shlosha and Hashim, turn out to be not normal, regular people, but people on, on God's mission. They are God is sending these people to uh, encounter Abraham to inform Abraham and Sarah, because Abraham already knows, but Sarah has to be told, if indirectly, that she is going to have a child. We discussed that last week. But it's interesting that the context of this revelation is Abraham's hospitality. So I did want to say a word about Abraham's hospitality as we encounter it in the beginning of chapter 18 and its significance for the Chumash in general. So let's see, what is it about Avram's hospitality? There are three strangers standing nearby. The first thing we notice about the way Avram behaves over here is the verb that we encounter in the second verse, second pasuk, So the first thing is he runs. And whether it's five days after his circumcision or the next day or whatever, one can imagine that he's not in the greatest shape but nonetheless, he runs to greet them by Yaratz, and he bows down. And he treats them as in a very deferential manner. If I find favor in your eyes, which typically in the Bible, to find favor, the person on a, in, a, in a lower uh, social place, asks of chain of grace for the one in a higher social class. So that a servant would say to his master, a subject would say to the king, or people would say to God. We have this in our prayers on Rosh Hashanah. I've pointed out in the past on Rosh Hashanah, we say, we say after we blow the shofar, God treat us either as your children or as your servants. If you see us as children, have, then have Rachmanut, Rachem. 
have mercy upon us. Maybe from the word rechem, womb. Rachum, you are a rachum. If you see us as your children, treat us with rachmonut. Fiyim kavadim. On the other hand, if you choose to see us as your servants, then then we are dependent upon you. We look towards you for our salvation. Ad until you show us chen, chanun. So we talk about rachum v'chanun when we hear the shofar. Rachum is children. Chanun are servants. Matzati chen So Avram treats these strangers passing, happen to pass by from his perspective, passing through. He talks to them as if he's the, they're his superiors. Please. Notice the word please. Don't, don't just pass by. From, he, calls, he calls himself from your servant. Take a little water. Let some water be given to you or take for yourself some water. Again, the word not, please, three times, please. A little water, just take a little water and rest under the tree. I will bring you some, some bread, a morsel of bread, a pat lechem. And you eat your meal. Then you leave. You have happened to pass by your servant. That's what Avram says. Give you a little water, rest a little bit, you'll pass through, etc. That's what he says. And now we have the description of what he does. So the first word in, in verse number six, he rushes. One of Avram's qualities in our tradition is to to do things and to to do things quickly, do things early, not to not to delay. Zrizut, it's called. By Maher Abraham, he rushes off to the tent to Sarah. By Mahari, he says, "Hurry up!" Shulos seim kemachsoret, take three sa'in, three sars of choice flour. Lushi vasiu, go quick, knead and, and make cakes. Bialabakar rats Abraham, then he runs. When again he's running to the flock. And he takes a, a, a calf, tender and choice calf. And he gives it to the, to the young man. Notice again the verb. So we have again three times rushing. And what does he get? He gets the choicest. Baking, Sarah's to bake cakes. Saw is a big measure. So he said, you take a little water, but what he's going to give them is a sumptuous meal. And then he takes milk, curds and milk. And the, and the calf that had been prepared for them. He places before them. He's not worried about meat and milk at this point. He waits on them. So he not just does he rush to bring them a sumptuous meal. After he said, take a little water, he brings them a seven course, course feast and he's personally waiting on them as they are eating. So this is a description of Abraham's hospitality. Doesn't say much, does a lot. And there's something else very important about the hospitality, critically important. And that is that he doesn't just do it himself. 
He involves himself, of course, and he's rushing around. He involves Sarah, his wife. She's also preparing the food. And the Nar, the young man, the unnamed young man, the, some commentaries and Midrash thinks it's perhaps his son, Ishmael. So he's involving the entire family in the hospitality. And I wanted to point out that in the involvement of the entire family in the beginning of chapter 18 is probably connected to what we read about at the end of chapter 17, where Avram was commanded to circumcise himself prior to the birth of Yitzchak. But at the end of chapter 17, the Torah emphasizes that Avram took Ayikach Avraham at Ishmael Beno, that's verse 23 of chapter 17, so he circumcises everybody in that, all the males in the household, all of them. Those the servants, his son Ishmael, etc. Those who were born in his house that he purchased, whatever. At the end, he, he himself is circumcised at age uh, 99. Uh, so it's not just himself. He's involving everybody in this commandment. It's his household. And now in the beginning of chapter 18, in terms of the hospitality, it's also about his household. This is, so these are the elements of Abraham's hospitality. It's the rushing, vayimaher, vayorots. It's the involvement of everybody in the house is preparing a rather sumptuous meal. Not much talk, but a lot of action. These are the elements of Avram's hospitality. This is an important point. And I'll say a couple more things and I'll stop and take comments or questions. Um, you know, it's in contrast, of course, to what we're going to see in, in the next chapter. Hopefully we'll get to that next week when, the, when these people, messengers, angels, come to Sodom to check it out, as God said. Let me see what's going on in Sodom, hearing bad things. Um, so there, Lot brings these strangers into his house. But in chapter 19, as we will see, Lot shows hospitality towards the strangers, and um, but it's himself. He's, his wife is not involved at all. He does everything himself. So this is the uh, contrast, I would say, between Lot, and the very word Lot means hidden, to be covered up or hidden, isolation. Lot works in isolation. It's a person who's influenced nobody, not his own family, not his community. A person with no influence, and we'll get to that next week, but Avram is different. Avram is involved with, the entire family is involved. He has a role, Sarah has a role. I see in the chat that Tova commented, maybe it's related to the idea that as Rashi quoted earlier, that uh, not Kaspam, that Abraham was busy calling out to all the men in the world to join his vision. And Sarah was busy calling out to all the women. And there's a partnership. And maybe that partnership is finds its biblical base in what we have over here. She's actively involved in the work of caring for the one who passes by, the stranger. Now, if we ask ourselves the question, uh, 
it's, I think, a very important question. The Torah seems to place a tremendous emphasis on this mitzvah of welcoming the stranger. What is that actually about? You have it over here in chapter 18, and this will be uh, preliminary to God uh, and the angels informing Abraham about Sarah's having a child. And it's preliminary to the story that we'll focus on this morning of Abraham praying for Sodom, and we'll get to that in a little while. And in the next chapter, Lot brings the strangers into his house. And at the end of the day, that's what saves Lot, actually. Lot is saved from Sodom, despite the fact that he's a very problematic person. But so this idea of welcoming the stranger seems to be something very, very significant. One of the real hallmarks of Abraham. If we ask one of the hallmarks of Abraham, it is, you know, it's about I would say Abraham's quality, positive qualities, this is one of the main ones. He has another positive quality of the willingness to leave his space, leave his place, and to go where God directs him. If I had to pick out two hallmarks of Abraham in the stories, those are the two I would pick out. It's the kindness that he shows to the stranger, and it's the willingness when God says, go, Abraham goes, the two lechuchas that sort of frame the Abraham narrative. And I will suggest that actually those two are, are actually related to each other. Because the idea of lechucha, the idea of going to the place that God directs you, comes from an understanding. And this is, I think, very important and even connected to last, to the chapter of last, uh, we saw last week of the covenant between me and you about the land of your sojournings, Eretz Megurecha, Ani Hashem, the connection to God through, yes, through a piece of land where you can live out a full life, but the goal is not the land, the goal is the connection to God. And in point of fact, the idea of leave your land means that actually, actually it's, it's, uh, understanding that your place is the place that God directs you to. That may be the sacred land. I believe the place may be not the sacred land. Everybody has a mission in this world. That's my own belief, but I think it's, one can make a good case for it. But the point about this, greeting the stranger, whom Abraham treats actually as his superiors. Oh, please, you pass by me. What an honor to have you. I am your humble servant, please, 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 let me take care of you just a little bit. Then he brings a whole meal. Perhaps where that comes from is the recognition that it's not that I have my place and you've sort of invaded my, my uh, privacy. For Abraham, that's not the way he thinks about it. I don't have a place. God has a place and I serve God. It just may happen that my place happens to be here today. Maybe tomorrow I'm in a different place. And it's, so the place is the place that God directs you to. So the happen, you happen to be passing by, but if you're passing by this place, it's as much yours as it is mine. Because after all, the place is not my place that you're invading. The world is God's world. And wherever we happen to be, if, if we're in the right place, then that is where, uh, and that's our place. So Hachnosat Orchim comes, I believe, from a deep understanding that there's no such thing as my place. That's the mentality of Avram over here. 
that you've invaded my place, which is much your place as it is mine. In fact, thank you for the opportunity to, to, to serve you. So perhaps those two things are connected because Hachnosat Rochim is clearly a critical mitzvah in terms of the Avram story and a critical mitzvah in terms of the Lob story. And I don't think it's because Avram thinks that these are God's messengers. That is very unclear in the story and certainly Lob doesn't. It's not actually about that, about they are God's messengers, that is true. That's not the reason that Avram treats them with deferentially. Whether he knows or doesn't know, I think the text is unclear. It doesn't actually seem to matter. So this is the story over here. And within this framework, this is the framework in which God will tell Sarah, who doesn't know apparently yet, Avram didn't tell her, uh, that they will have a, a, this covenantal child. There's something else interesting, just one last point before I stop for a moment. And that is, that if you look at the beginning of the chapter, it's Vayera Hashem, Elav Hashem Mamre. So the verb is God appeared to Abraham, Vayera. And then in the next pasuk, in verse number two, Vayisa Enav Vayar, Vinesh Roshah Nashim Nitzavim Alav, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw. We have an expression, Vayisa Enav Vayar, he lifted up his eyes and he saw. We have it, the Akedah as well. And then you have, Vayar, Vayarat Likwatam, he saw and he ran to greet them. So the, the, the word Vayar in verse number two seems to be superfluous. It said he saw. He saw three people standing close by and he could have said he ran to greet them. Why did the Chumash repeat Vayar? Vayar, and then he, once again, Vayar. He saw and he saw. So it strikes me that the seeing over here, the Vayar and the Vayar in, in verse two, is clearly connected to verse number one, which is Hashem God is appearing to Abraham. God is making God seen in Elonei Mamre. Remember that the Hebrew is not vocalized, the same letters, Vayar, Vayar, Vayar. And it strikes me that what the Chumash is, is after over here is a kind of reciprocity. In the previous chapter, God had spoken about the covenant Be'niu Be'necha. Avram is doing God's work, basically. And there's a kind of mutuality, a reciprocity that we have over here, which the Chumash presents in terms of Vayar. And it does exactly the same thing a few chapters later in the story of Akedat Yitzchak, where there, after Avram uh, looks up, Vayisai Nav, he looks up, looks up and sees the ram entangled in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the brush, and he brings a sacrifice in the place that God has told him. He saw the place from a distance. He sees the aisle, and then he names the place. Hashem Yireh, the place that God sees. Hashem Yireh. Hashem Yireh Hayom, Bahar Hashem Yireh, the place in which God is seen. So the point is that that verse, if we read it the way it, in our tradition is vocalized, the place that God sees is the place that God is seen. It precisely parallels what we have in that chapter over here and speaks to a kind of partnership between God on one hand and Avram on the other, which has its echoes already in the previous chapter. I will establish my covenant between me and you, between you, Benecha. So this is the setting over here, this behavior of Avraham 
is first the setting for the announcement to Sarah of the birth of this covenantal child. And then of course, it's the setting for the second half of chapter 18 that we will get to in momentarily. But before that, let me just stop here and take comments, questions. Rabbi, Rabbi yes. I think it's so interesting that it shows that Sidkut of Avraham, he maintains what he can with Yishmael, charity beginning in the home, and until Hashem sort of makes that impossible. But it's a real uh, ma'ala, ma'al, you know, with all that's going on, he's still trying to influence Yishmael. I just, I can't let go of that part because he just disappears, you know. Well, he disappears later on. Avram doesn't want to send him away later, but he does because God tells him to. But yes, no, right. certainly Yishmael is his son. But at this point, he has no other son yet. I mean, Isaac is not, there's been the message to him that Yitzchak will be born. But Yishmael is his son and always is his son, actually. He loves Yishmael. It's not just Yishmael. It says all those born in his house are right. members of the household. We know already from chapter 14, he has 318 members in his household at that point. Mm -hmm. So it's a big household, but it's a, it's a household. This is, I think, what these Midrashim pick up on, in which Avram sees his mission as in, involving other people in the, in the good work that he does, whether it's his wife over here, whether it's his, the, the Nar, and the text is maybe purposely ambiguous. It doesn't say Yishmael. It mm -hmm. says the Nar, suggesting maybe it's not just a particular Nar. It could be any of the Narim in his house, right? He spoke yeah. earlier in chapter 14 of Na'arim, the Anashim, the Na'arim, the Avadim, his honor, Eshko, Mamre, et cetera, et cetera. So this is someone who was able to involve other people. And he does it by example, I would add. He's told others to hurry up, but he hurries himself. So that's a very important point. And that's going to be the, the measure as to whether someone is like Abraham or unlike Abraham. The... For example, the person in the Torah, in the Chumash, in Sefer Breshit, who shares Abraham's qualities, who shares Abraham's quality of kindness to the stranger, of course, there is one such person, that is Rebecca, Rivka, in chapter 24. And the description of Rivka in chapter 24 is precisely the description of Abraham in chapter 18, including the rushing, the hurrying, the rushing. The doing more than than doing more than just what you have to do, going beyond the idea of chesed, which is to go beyond. So this is a very important story. Whether someone is like Abraham or not, we measure it by this particular barometer of hospitality. Lot, in the next chapter, he's like Sodom. He offers his daughters to the people of Sodom. That's Sodom-like. On the other hand. There's a side to Lot, which is like Abraham, and that is the side of hospitality. It's, it's, uh, it's measured by the hospitality. So it's, yes, it is Yishmael, but it's not just Yishmael, it's everybody in the house. That's a very important point. When we get to next week to 19, we will see that clearly. Anybody else? I would like to say something. Yeah. Another word which is, keeps um, repeating itself is la'avor. Yes. So I just wanted to suggest, I don't know, it's a wild idea that it's in a way it's opposite of Amalek because Orchim um, are coming in the derech. Who are Orchim? People who are walking in the derech and you stop and you say, come into my house. 
So, I mean, if people are in the derech, you can either be like Amalek or you can be like Avraham, basically. I think that's true. And I think that Avraham, I think that the various Midrashim make the point, we have to remember that Avraham himself, and that's a very important point about Avraham, from the beginning to the end, we would say he's a kind of nomad. He's a person who is told to leave his home and to go on a path. Um, you know, it's unclear to him, God makes promises in chapter 12, that's true. But it's very unclear how these promises will be realized. Avram himself says in chapter 15, you promised to make me a great nation. Is it Eliezer of Damascus that's gonna be the uh, my successor? I don't have a, a natural heir, etc. So the path is a long and winding path for Avram himself. His life is a life of being on the road, one might say. And perhaps only people who are on the road who know what it means to be strangers, etc., cetera, uh, can appreciate, you know, other people being on a, on a path. So I certainly agree that the word of Avar is a critical word over here. We have that in other places as well in the Chumash, but for, for sure, I think that's, um, by the way, I would just, since you made the point about to pass and I made the point about Derech, just to jump ahead for one minute, when God speaks to Abraham later in this chapter, when God says, I can't conceal from Abraham what I plan to do to Sodom, and in verse number 19, so I have singled him out perhaps or chosen him. He commands his children and his household after him to shamrut derech Hashem, to observe God's derech. So there the Chumash actually uses the word derech in God singling out the qualities of Abraham, what makes him so special. If you show derech Hashem, to do righteousness and justice, we'll get to that verse, but the, the, the idea of a derech here may be related to what you're saying. He takes people on a path, takes them in. And I think derech more generally though, Elsewhere we have it, actually in, in Yitro, when Yitro comes to visit Moshe, you, Mo, and Yitro says, you will teach them, mm. teach them the path that they should walk on and the things they should do. And there it's clear, and the Gemara understands it this way as well, that there are things we, we're supposed to do, there are obligations that we have. That's true. There are general obligations people have, and there are obligations depending on circumstance. And apart from all that, there's the path that you take, which is not the same as simply the obligations, but there's a path. And the path sometimes is not, you're obligated to do something. That doesn't make it any less important or less correct or less right to do. And the idea of figuring out on the path that I happen to be on what the right thing to do is, that's incredibly important. And that's being able to decide what the right thing is without being told. So. But in any event, coming to your point about people on the road, as we might say, yes, I do think that's accurate. And Avram himself, of course, is the prime example of somebody who is Baderech. Okay, that's the first part. So let's now, if there are other comments, you can hold them or put them in the chat, or we'll have another opportunity to, to speak up and to question, etc. Okay, so this is the first part. I wanted to jump now to part number two of the chapter, chapter 18, part two, which is Avraham's uh, 
story about Sodom. These, these, these strangers uh, who are God's messengers, they leave. Um, and this is verse number 16. This is in addition, by the way, and another aspect of what it means to, to greet the stranger or to bring in the guest. It is uh, to walk with them when they leave. Livaya, we call it, to accompany someone who's leaving. So you're walking as if you are, the idea of accompanying somebody who's leaving, perhaps can be understood as you're leaving the space that you were in now that we shared, and I'm gonna walk with you a bit on your journey, as if to say, if I would, I would continue to walk with you. I can't do that, I have other obligations, but I'm, I see myself with you on the path. I'm, it's, as if I'm, 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 I help you on your path, even as you leave. That's the idea of sort of accompanying the person, and this is part of the mitzvah, and that's what Avram does in verse number 16. Meanwhile, they're looking out by Yashkifu Sodom. They're looking out towards Sodom. So we don't know why yet they're looking out towards Sodom. We will discover very soon why they're looking out towards Sodom. So the, so the next verse is Vashem Omar. Now Hashem speaks and says, Shall I conceal from Abraham that which I plan to do? Abraham will become a great and mighty nation. And through Abraham are all the families, the nations of the world to be blessed. So he has some connection to all the nations. So I shouldn't conceal what I plan to do. And we'll see what that is shortly. And then the, then the next verse, ki yidativ, yidativ, literally I know of him, or I've chosen him, I singled him out. In order that he commands his children and household to follow him. And they will observe, keep God's path. To do what is correct, what is righteous, and what is correct, equitable and righteous. Those are two very key terms in the Bible, Tzedakah Mishpat. Roman Havi Hashem al Abraham, in order to enable God to bring to Abraham, or upon Abraham, Eit Hashem Diber Allah, that which God has spoken of, namely the blessing. So here, this verse seems to be an incredibly interesting verse. I can't conceal from Avram. Why can God not conceal from Avram? So God says, because Avram is the father of many nations. So perhaps what happens to other nations is relevant to him. But then we have verse number 19, where God added an additional element. He's been chosen because he commands those in his household, his descendants, to go on God's path, to do tzedakah u mishpat. God singles out tzedakah u mishpat. And that's the cause that, that enables God to bring about the blessings, the promises, to fulfill the promises that God has made to Avram. I presume the covenantal promises if chapter 15 and 17, and even the promises throughout the Abraham narrative as well.
Right. And what is it that God can conceal? So what God can conceal is begins in verse number 20. Vayomer Hashem, Zakat Sedom Vamoraki Rabba. The cries of Sedom and Amora are great. And their sin is very heavy. It's very grievous. So means the cries. It means what God is hearing, presumably. The cries of what I'm hearing from Sodom and Amora are the cries of people being oppressed. Their sin is obviously very heavy. Something is very wrong. And we know back in chapter 13, we remember in chapter 13 of when Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the plain of the Jordan that was very fertile, right? And he saw Sodom and Amorah. And there the Torah said in chapter 13, The people of Sodom were very wicked. They were sinners in chapter 13. So the... Uh, The uh, so God knows something is wrong from what God is hearing. However, in verse number twenty-one, God says, "I will go down and see." Is what they're doing in consonance with the cries that I am hearing? Yes, and yes. Shlomo, uh, Shmuel points out that in verse number twenty, Zaka. And in verse number 21, it's tzaka. What is the difference between that is a very good question. Let me just see what it is in the beginning of Sefer Shemot, which has, of course, the exact parallel verses at the end of chapter two of Sefer Shemot. There it says, by, in verse number 23 of Shemot, chapter two, it says the king of Egypt died. There it's Vayizaka with the Zion. Vatal Shavatam El Elohim Bina Avodah. Their cry for help ascended to heaven from their bondage. So there it's actually Zaka. Um, what do we have in the, in the Megillah? In the Megillah, when Mordechai cries out in chapter four, Vayitzak, let's see, there it's Zaka, I believe. Chapter four, Vayizak with a Zion. Vayizak Zaka Gedola Umara. That's Vayizak Zaka Gedola Zion. What do we have when Esau discovers that his birthright and his blessing has been taken in chapter 27? That's, let's see what that is. That is Vayitzak. Vayitzak with the Tzari. Vayitzak Zaka Gedola Umara with the Tzari. That's a good question. What is the difference between Vayitzak and Vayizak? Let's leave that for now. But we notice that there's certainly parallel, that's for sure. Uh, but in any event, so over here, God says what? God says, listen, I'm hearing bad things. Something bad's going on there. But precisely what it is, so if it's exactly what, what I'm hearing, then Kala, I will put an end to them. Kala, finished, goodbye, Kala. Be low. But if it's not exactly the same, I will know what to do. Sounds like I'll do something, but I won't utterly destroy them. One might say that, use the language of the Talmud, hearing is not the same as seeing. 
the Talmud places a premium on seeing above hearing. Witnesses, we hear what the witnesses say. Okay, witnesses are telling us what happened, but if we see it with our own eyes, then that's better evidence. The Talmud presumes that seeing is, um, is better than hearing. Nowadays, I think there's a certainly a notion in jurisprudence that we're not so sure that we actually, that what we think we saw is actually correct. You know, better off with DNA, but it doesn't matter. The point is, that's what God says. Let me go down and see. I will go down and see. We got a similar expression with the Tower of Babel. God went down to see the city and the tower. In chapter 11 of this book, we had that. So God says, let me go down and see. So presumably God going down and seeing refers to God's messengers going down and seeing. And these are the two uh, messengers, the two malachim as they called in the beginning of chapter 19, who will be one might say, God's, why does God need two? So the Medrash says one angel to save, one angel to destroy. I would say maybe God needs two because the Torah emphasized in more than one place, you need two, two witnesses. When it comes to capital cases, one witness is not good. You need two. So God is abiding by God's own laws. I will go down and see. In short, God is informing Abraham, I can't keep it from Abraham. And we ask the question, why not? Why can't God keep it? Okay, he's the father of many nations. So what? Is that really the sufficient response? So I believe there's something else over here that I wanted to share. I've mentioned this in the past as to why in this particular case, God feels it necessary to inform Abraham about what God is likely to do. And that is what God said in verse number 19. I know that Abraham has commanded his household and his children to follow in his footsteps to walk on God's path, those two key words, and we all remember, at least those who studied the first, the, earlier in the year, when we got to chapter 14, that Abraham uh, hears that his nephew Lot has been captured, and he sets out to, to save Lot. In saving Lot, though, he saves not just Lot, when he saves the entire town of Sodom. The town of Sodom owes its existence to two people. One is Abraham, who set out, and even though his intention was to save only Lot, he saves the entire town, town of Sodom. Without Abraham, it doesn't exist. It's captured by the powerful four kings. And one might say that in that story, whatever we think of the people of Sodom, and the Torah has already told us they're not very good. How bad, we're not sure yet. But one thing is for certain that the people of Sodom and the, uh, the five kings in general are powerless against the four kings. The four kings are four giants. The king of Shinar, the king of Babel, the king of Elam, etc. And the five kings are five nobodies who think they're somebody. So what Abraham has done in chapter 14 is to rescue the weak from the strong. And we notice that in chapter 14, 
Four words appear in chapter 14 that are very striking. One is Mishpat, in Mishpat. One is Tzedek, Malki Tzedek, Tzedakah or Mishpat. Then we have Chova and we have Don. These are all judicial terms. Din, Chova, judgment, finding one guilty, Mishpat and Tzedakah. So God says to Abraham in chapter 18, how can I not tell you what I plan to do to Sodom? You're the person who saves Sodom. And in fact, your saving of Sodom, we could classify as Tzedakah or Mishpat, because Tzedakah and Mishpat in the Bible, to do Tzedakah and Mishpat typically is to defend those that are weaker. Amalek is God's enemy because God's all about Tzedakah or Mishpat. The Shamru Derech Hashem, Tzedakah or Mishpat, and Amalek is one who attacks you by Derech, and as uh, was mentioned earlier, picks on the weakest, takes advantage of people's weakness. So Amalek is God's enemy. So we read in the Megillah, what Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a people out there, they're scattered and dispersed amongst the nations. They don't have their own Medina. They don't have their own state. They can't defend themselves. They are scattered and dispersed amongst the nations. Like a good Amalekite, that's an opportunity for Haman. If you wish, you know, let's get rid of them. They serve no purpose. Therefore, it's not worthwhile to keep them alive, and I'll even pay for it, says Haman. So that's a Amalek. So here, God says, how could I not, how could I not tell Avram what I plan to do? He's the one that saves Sodom. I'm turning around and destroying Sodom. Of course, I have to tell him. And now there's something else over here, and that is that God emphasized, and the reason I have to tell Avram this is because I know he's very concerned about Sadako Mishpat. That's what God said. Sadako Mishpat, that's his thing. When God says to Avram, I have to tell you about this because you're concerned about Sadako Mishpat. So this verse is an invitation actually to, uh, to Abraham saying to God, well, since you're a God whose path is that of Sadako and Mishpat, let me ask you a question. Is what you plan to do to Sodom, because you said, actually God singled out Sodom and Amora, Zakat, Sodom, Amora. okay, say two cities, whatever, but uh, is that right? Is it right to kill all the people in the town? Is that actually Sadaka or Mishpat? Hashofei Mishpat, O judge of the whole world, will you not judge with Mishpat? But what gives Avram the right to say such a thing, to question God's justice, which he does? Not only that, he talks about tzaddikim. Maybe there are tzaddikim, tzedakah or mishpat. But the answer, of course, is obvious. God has given Abraham virtually the script. God has no problem with Abraham's prayer because God has even given Abraham the script. God says, I know you care about tzedakah or mishpat. I'm all about tzedakah or mishpat. And that gives Abraham the opportunity then to say, okay, let's talk about this. Is this actually tzedakah or mishpat, what you plan to do? Because maybe they're righteous people. We'll, we'll get to Abraham's prayer in a moment. But that I think is the point. And I would add one last detail and I'll stop here for a moment and take comments or questions that actually what God says about Abraham, he involves his, he says his children and his household in doing tzedakah or mishpat. If we understand Sadako or Mishpat as right behavior, as helping those people who need help, 
than the story that we read in the first part of this chapter, namely helping people who are, the, who are, who are over, who don't have a place at the moment, who are by derech. Derech is a place, as we know, of, of danger because you're on the road. You're, you're not here, you're not there. You're vulnerable to what might happen. You encounter the unexpected. So his very behavior in the beginning of chapter 18 reinforces what God says afterwards about Abraham, that he does tadako mishpat, and maybe that's what drives the medrash to say that the nar in the beginning of chapter 18 is no, none other than Yishmael, his son, because after all, Beito is his wife, and the nar is Yishmael, and what God said. This is a person who involves other people, the family, the wife, the children, and everybody else in his, in his, in his good work, so I can't conceal it. So that's what God is saying over here. And this is an invitation to prayer. Now I'll stop at this point for a moment and I'll take some comments or questions. Just one second, please. Okay, if anybody has comments or questions, let's hear. Yeah, Tzedakah and Mishpat, it just occurred to me that, that Noah has tzedakah, he's, he's tzaddik, but he doesn't have mishpat. Right. He also, and he also doesn't pray. And, that, and that's, yeah, and that's critical. So he himself is saved, etc. Okay. Yeah. Right. He doesn't pray. And now, on the other hand, Shmuel, he also wasn't invited to pray. And by the way, I would add that Noah doesn't pray. And I agree that through what we read with Abraham, we can go back to Noah and ask the question, why didn't he pray, actually? You know, in the parallel stories of the ancient Near East, of which there are many, to the flood, uh, Gilgamesh, there are a whole bunch of the stories. And, uh, you know, when you read those stories, you realize that the Chumash is different in certain respects, but the parallels are very striking. But in some of those stories, he actually prays. The one is that the God of the gods will save is, is actually praying. Say what, I mean, he says, what about the other people? Noah never says that. And when you read the story of Noah, I think when you read it initially, back in chapter six and seven, I don't, my view is anyway, my understanding is the Chumash does not condemn Noah because God said to him, you are the only tzaddik. tzaddik the whole generation is no good. You are the only tzaddik. Noah doesn't say anything. So it doesn't sound like the Torah condemns Noah. It says Noah did what God commanded. It says it several times. When you're reading that story now through the prism of our chapter, which the Medrash likes to do, and I think it is valid to read it that way in addition to the other way, then you can raise the question whether Noah's silence is a silence that we can uh, critique or not. I think that's a very good question. But yes, Noah, we have the Tzaddik. We don't have the Mishpat, that's for sure. Anybody else? Yeah, the, the partnership that Avraham and Hashem has, based on what we're discussing now, Noah has no partnership with Hashem. He's just kind of the, the student or subject, but that, he, that partnership is not there. Well, I would say the following. Noah does have a kind of partnership. There is a covenant. Let's not forget. Abraham has a covenant with God, and Noah has a covenant with God, but they're different covenants. The, the, the sign of the covenant for Abraham is circumcision, it's he's the father of, of many nations, and particularly, he's the father of a covenantal nation, a particular covenantal nation in chapter 15 and chapter 17. Not all of Abraham's descendants 
enter into the covenant. They may all be people that Abraham brings blessing to. Yishmael was a blessed child, but not a covenantal child. The covenant of Noah, of course, is a covenant. It's the rainbow. The Torah called it a covenant. It's an old bridge. Yes, the covenant for Noah comes later. That is true. The covenant of Noah takes place after the flood, but that's when the new world begins. Noah is the father of this new world. The Talmud calls people, all people, humanity, B'nai Noah. We are Noah's children. That first world is essentially erased. Noah is a new start, but it is, it is correct to say that Noah has a covenant, God's covenant with humanity, covenant not to destroy the world. Um, that's, you know, that's a covenant that we, that the Torah connects to, uh, to Noah. Abraham's covenant, that's a different covenant. Anybody else? Yes, um, I, I was thinking that, um, uh, that Abraham finally accepts God's judgment about um, destroying um, the city. And, and it's, this is perhaps a way for him to, for Abraham to accept God's uh, command at the Akedah that because God is just and knows and he trusts God, that this is what enables him not to question at that point and to really go ahead with the Akedah. Okay, you know something, you've actually raised a very, very interesting point, which I hope we get to, whether we'll get to it this set of classes or the next set, I'm not sure. But the question that you're raising implicitly is, how come over here, and we're about to read this, Avram challenges God, as a whole protracted negotiation from the Torah's standpoint, a long conversation with God. And at the Akedah, when God says, bring your son, your only son, the one you love, and bring him as a sacrifice, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't protest. What do we make of his silence at the Akeda in contrast to his protracted negotiation? One might see even critique of God over here. We'll have to leave that till we get to the Akeda. That's actually a very important point. And whatever, let's, we'll, we can discuss it when we get to the Akeda. Let's first okay. let's take a look now. Yes, let's look now at these, at this, at this Abraham's prayer in chapter 18. And I simply want to make the point, we said this before, Avram really is the first person who actually prays. Think about the, the father of prayer. I would say it is, it, is, it is Abraham. Abraham is one who prays. Noah doesn't pray. Avram is one who prays. And, you know, our Shemona Esrei, the first blessing of the Shemona Esrei, the first blessing classically is Mogain Avraham. So that is the classical first blessing. Shield of Abraham is the first blessing. Yes, we include the other Ravot, and some progressive Jews like to include some of the Imahot as well, but that's the first prayer. Kayan's prayer is a little different. Um, Kayan is a kind of prayer. If we, even if we take it that he's actually Godot Abonim and so is a kind of request. When you've, the penalty you've imposed upon me is too great. That is true. He's praying for himself. He's praying that somehow the penalty be, or he'd be relieved of the full, of the full penalty. Okay, I, I do accept that. But Abraham's prayer is much more extensive. And there's something else about Cain. Cain prays for, if it, even if it's a call that a prayer, he prays for himself. Abraham's prayer is much more all-encompassing. In fact, he did pray for himself in chapter 15 and not for his wife, I would add. But in this chapter, he's praying for total strangers. Now it's true that Lot is there, but he never mentions Lot. It's also very striking. 
And uh, later on in chapter 21, chapter 20, when Avimelech takes by force uh, Sarah, and God says to Avimelech in chapter 20, return the man's wife, he's a prophet, he will pray for you. Kinovihu, he's called the prophet, Abraham's the first to be called the prophet, and the definition of prophet is one who prays for the other. So Abraham is praying not just for himself, Abraham prays for himself, and he prays for others as well, he prays for Sodom, he prays for Abimelech, etc., etc. So it sounds like the idea of Abraham and prayer is a very powerful link between Avram and prayer, and hopefully as we continue our journey through this book, we will encounter this again in a most interesting way about Avram and prayer. And our, our basic prayer begins with Avram. Magen Avraham is the text of the, that we have, the, the uh, Palestinian traditions were different. They had Magen Avot, but okay, we have Magen Avraham. Magen Avot we say on Friday night, but Magen Avraham. Okay, let's take a look now. Let's at least begin with, see how far we can get with Abraham's prayer for Sodom. So here, Fine. Here we have verse number 23. So the others have left to Sodom. Abraham continues to stand before God. It's very interesting that the term Abraham is because we call our, our basic prayer of the Jewish people which is the Shemona Esrei, the silent prayer, the Chana's prayer, is called Amida. It's called Amida. We call our prayer Amida. And it's very interesting. Uh, by the way, I'm just as, a, as an aside, I'm thinking that after the summer, I would like to, I've been working on this for quite a while, I would like to begin to teach uh, prayer. Prayer and the biblical roots of prayer and I'm also very interested in connecting prayer to uh, music. I have a project I'm interested in, which is an integration of prayer, understanding the prayers, and then to integrate it with music, the music being a kind of interpretive tool. It's a largely Hasidic music of different Hasidic places, etc. And I think that is the most interesting project to see how the music can serve as an interpretation of the, of the davening but of course, if you want to interpret the davening through music, the first step is to try to understand the davening. Otherwise, you've got to come out with music that has no relationship whatsoever to what we're saying. So the integration of these two is something I've been interested in for years, and I'm working on this now to put together a team of, of, of singers, actually. And I'm how to integrate with the, with the prayer services of throughout the year, Yabim Noraim, the festival prayers, the Shabbat prayers, even the daily prayers. Same I've been thinking about. I'm hopeful to uh, teach it next year. So uh, try it out on you and other people. And, you know, it's a good thing about, about teaching. You can try your ideas on other people. In any event, let's get back over here. So this is Amida. Avraham Odenu Omeid Lifnei Hashem. Standing before God. Vayigash Avraham Vayomar. Now Abraham draws near. Because on one hand, standing up, there's something about prayer that's very striking. And this is a very important text about prayer. On one hand, there's Amida. You know, the, 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 way, the way one holds one's body, 
in prayer is very, the way one holds one's body in general is important. You know, you're talking to somebody else. How close do you stand? How far away do you stand? What are you looking at? Where do you look? Directly, indirectly. All of these things are related to human relationships and also to prayer. So do you fall down on the ground when you pray? Do you pray standing up? In our tradition, we call the Shimon Esrei the Amida. But right after the Amida, we have what's called Tachadod Nefilat Apayim, falling on the ground. So the, this one stance in prayer is related to how one sees oneself in prayer. Amida strikes me as a kind of mutuality, to stand before God, not to fall before God, not to fall on my face, but to stand. And that speaks to what we've seen over here in terms of God saying to Abraham, of course, it's crazy that the human being can see one, see the human as God's equal in any way. Obviously, that's crazy. But nonetheless, that's the way God presents it to Abraham. I will establish a covenant between me and you. Covenant of forever. Through my descendants. Through the people I identify with. Okay. But that's So Abraham, on the other end, Vayigash. Vayigash, to approach gingerly, to approach with awe, to approach with reverence. You approach the king, Vayigash, okay? So often it's used in those terms. So on one hand, he stands before God, and he's been given license to do so. On the other hand, Vayigash, he goes, draws near, and Avram says, Haaf, tisped, tzadikim, rasha, God, would you tisped, from the word self, would you make an end of, would you sweep away the righteous together with the with the with the wicked, Sadiqim Rasha, you talk about utterly destroying the city. That means everybody in the city will die. Ha'af to spare. Would you even, would you even wipe away, make an end to the righteous with the wicked? Maybe there are 50 righteous people. Will you destroy and not and not hold the place innocent. For the sake of the 50 righteous, he's made two arguments. He starts by saying you shouldn't kill the righteous together with the wicked. And then he jumps to, if there are 50 righteous, you should perhaps even spare the city. Does he mean to spare the entire city? That's what it sounds like. So he's making a jump. If, if within the city there are 50 righteous, you can't simply destroy the city. He's not saying the wicked shouldn't be judged. They say, you don't destroy the city. And this, Avram says, and Avram continues, God, it, it, God forbid, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing. Suggesting that the tzaddik and the rasha are all the same. There's no difference between them. It's, this is, should be far from you, forbidden to you, profane for you, perhaps. Should the judge of the whole world not do justice? So what Avram is doing over here is simply echoing what God said. God says, I care about tzedakah or mishpat. And this very verse, which is very sharp, actually, Avram talks about the tzaddik and about mishpat. He says, God, well, how, how can you do this? How, this is not right. This is wrong for you to do. It's not right for you. For someone else, I don't know, but for you, you can't do this because your way is that of Tzedakah or Mishpat. 
but he's been invited to say these words. You know, in prayer, there's what the Talmud speaks of going too far, but it is an invitation. Now, it is very curious that he starts with 50. And the, the Medrash, the commentaries are wondering about this, Rashi, why did he pick the number 50? Why does he pick the number 50? So Rashi claims that he picked start with the number 50 because we know there are five cities. There are five cities, five cities in chapter 14, Sodom, Amora, Admor, Tzvoyim, and then there's Tzor. There are five cities. So 50 means 10 in each city. He's talking about sparing all the cities and he needs 10 in each city, 10 times five, you have 50. That's what Rashi suggests. The truth of the matter is, just to uh, put it out there, I find it a bit odd. Certainly is a possibility and it would make some sense of the 50. But what is very striking is that the Chumash here, when God speaks to Abraham, God said to Avram, I'm hearing the cries of Sodom and Amorah. That's what God said earlier. Sodom, Zakat, Sodom, Vamoraki, Rabu. God singled out specifically two, two cities, Sodom and Amorah. And now in the conversation over here, it's curious that God in the next verse answers Avram, if within the city of Sodom, I find 50 righteous, tzaddikim, righteous, perhaps innocent is better than righteous. I will forgive the entire place for their sake. And you got to wonder, has the, have we, are we talking only about Sodom? Or are we talking about all these other towns as well? Or five of them? To me, it's very unclear. And actually, even in chapter 14, it was very interesting that it begins in chapter 14 with um, these five kings. And then it talks about two of the five kings falling into the slime pits in chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, when Avram returns successfully from the battle, so the Chumash is focusing in on Sodom. Starts with five, then you have two, then you have Sodom. Here it doesn't mention five altogether. Here it starts with two, but the entire conversation is only about Sodom. So then the question is, what, why in fact do we start with 50? What is the number 50 about? Let's leave that for now. I have a thought about 50. But Rashi anyway, and the Ramban basically, the others basically follow Rashi's view. It doesn't originate in Rashi certainly, but Rashi's view that the 50 is five times 10. So God agrees. If you have 50, then I'll spare the whole city. I guess if there are 50 righteous people in the city, they can influence the town, perhaps. There's hope for change, etc. Let's leave the number 50 out of it. Fine. Avram says, here I am talking to God, continuing to speak to God. And I'm dust and ashes. So there's a, he recognizes the absurdity. But he doesn't stop talking. So within prayer, you have this. On one hand, who am I to speak? On the other hand, I have license to speak, or I have to speak. I can't be silent. And Avra makes another argument. 
Hatashkit Bachamisha at Koreir. Avram says, look, maybe there'll be, won't be 50. Maybe we'll get to 45. For the sake of five, we'll destroy the whole city. It's a clever argument. And God says, I won't destroy them if I find 45. Given this argument, you could reduce it to zero. 45 is okay. What about 44 for one person? Okay, 45. How about 43? So this is an interesting argument. He presents, he doesn't jump from 50 to, he says, well, just five. God says, fine. 45 is okay. Rashi said 45 is nine times five, and God will count as the tenth. Okay, whatever. How about 40? Avram bogged it down to 40. Now Avram says again, Let me continue. Spoken angry. I want to, let me speak a little more. How about 30? No, okay, I'll do nothing if there's 30. Look, I continue to speak, says Abraham. Maybe the 20. I won't destroy if they're 20. But Abraham continues. Next verse. What's the next verse? Let's see. Vayomer, uh, one last statement. Maybe the 10. I won't destroy if they're 10. So here's a question. How, how you, by the way, I don't have a watch on me. What, what time is it now? Uh, it's 11.10. Okay. Start in five minutes. But here there's an interesting question about this conversation. Of course, Avram, on one hand, he is a good negotiator. He bargains it down. From 50, he gets down to 10. He stops at 10, which is one question. Why did he stop at 10? He's doing so well. Why didn't he say, how about five? For five, you're going to kill everybody. But he doesn't say that. He stops at 10. Maybe we'll discuss that. But there's something else very curious over here that all the Lefarshim pick up on. And that is, he goes from 50 to 45. But from 45, he goes to 40. And then he doesn't go to 35 or 25 or 15. He goes 40, then to 30, then to 20, and then to 10. So the 45 is actually anomalous. And you have to wonder, what is the 45 doing here? Rashi tried to say, well, the 45 is nine, and then you throw God into the mix, you know? It was a question in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Middle Ages, in the, in the Bawaya Tosvot, if you need a minion of 10, what if you have nine? Can you count the, the ark itself as the 10th? Discussion in the Rishonim, or somebody holding a chumash, etc. Child holding a chumash. In any event, that's Rashi. But it is curious about the 45. It's also interesting that he stops at 10. And the last verse I find also interesting. And God, God went, God walked. Strange expression, God walked away. When when God had finished speaking to Abraham, it seems like Abraham did most of the talking. God did answer. God said, I won't go, 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 
Avraham Shavrim Komo. So I wanted to, I'll pick up with this next time. Then we'll move to chapter 19. Let me say one last thing about this. What struck me is interesting over here. I'm not sure this is going to satisfy you. I'm not sure it satisfies me, but it strikes me as very interesting. The expression kasher kira. The expression kasher kira, when God finished, okay? We have that in the very first chapter of the Torah. The earth was, the world was created. The totality of everything was created in six days. God completed, maybe by the seventh day, God completed all the work that God had done. And God rests on the seventh day. So there's a description of six days of work, which are completed, and the seventh day is a day of rest. We have it with the Mishkan. Exactly the same language. There the people are building God's house on God's instruction. As many have noted, the same expression with the Mishkan, the same that describes God's in creation, we have precisely the same with the Mishkan. And at the end of the Mishkan, the work of the Olamoed had been completed. And what I'm wondering about is this conversation over here. Because it is interesting that how many requests does Abraham make to God? There's 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. There are actually 10 requests, six requests, I'm sorry. There are six Hi, requests. No. Six, what? I counted five, five six. minutes ago. Well, you count, no, six. 50 is one, maybe the yeah. 50 tzaddikim. Then the 45 is two, 40 mm -hmm. is three, 30 is four, 20 is five, and 10 is six. There's six because he added 45, that's my point. The 45 is there, I believe, to get you to six requests. There's six prayers and six, yeah. and six God responds six times. And after the sixth time, God is, com is completed. Kasher the Beryl Abraham. And there's something very interesting about this, in my view. Call it a drusha. We all know the world can exist without, without repentance. The world can exist without prayer. It can't. Because people are, we're not all Sodom, obviously, but people are imperfect. And what we have over here reminds you of the Medrash, that before the world is created, there is repentance. And what God is, what Abraham is praying for, because God is going to destroy Sodom, destruction of Lashchit. It's exactly the word we have with the terms of the Bible. Hishchit kobud Noah, Hishchit kobasar It's the idea of, of, of the world has come to a place which has to be destroyed. And Sodom is going to be destroyed. Sodom is going to be destroyed on one hand, but there'll be someone who's saved from Sodom, parallel to Noah, which will be Lot. He'll be saved, right? And the note, Lot and Noah parallels are very striking. We'll get to that next week. But there's something over here about the six, the six prayers after which Kasher Kira. Mm -hmm. And I, perhaps the, what the Chumash is after, among many other things, apart from describing the right to pray and God's acceptance of prayer and the stance of the one who prays, both the physical stance and also the emotional stance and all of that has to do with the God of creation, the God of Breshi. The God of creation understands the imperfection of the human being. And Avram is the spokesperson 
for the whole world, as God says. So Abraham stands over here and actually is praying to God and challenging God. And it is very striking, and I'll just conclude with this thought, that in the places in the Bible where someone challenges God's justice, and there are two such places for sure, that the Midrashim connect these two characters. One is Abraham, and the other is Eov. The book of Eov, of course, is, um, the book of Eov is, is uh, all about God, how God runs the world, God judges the world. The Midrashim connect Abraham and Eov in many ways. And what's very striking is that when one questions the way God governs the world, as Abraham is given license to do, he takes it upon himself. In neither case is it about the Jews, actually. It's a universal question. It's a question about the world, a question about Sodom of all places. It's a question about God's justice in general. So I think that is quite interesting and quite striking. And perhaps that's exactly the point, that the same way God completes creation in six days, God patiently responds to Abraham about God's governance in six different stages. How do you get to six? Now, why they start with 50, I'll get to that next time. Had a thought about it. We'll get to the 50, but that's what I wanted to say about Abraham and his prayer. Now, there's another question over here about well, Abraham's prayer. Let me just mention, I'll stop with this. And that is, that what is interesting to me is what he doesn't say. Because it were up to me, what I would have said is, hey, you know something? Oh, God, uh, bad people, all right, whatever. I got, a, I got a, a, a nephew there, you know? My nephew lives there and his family. So maybe a little protects you, you know what I mean? Maybe help out my nephew, which in fact is what happens because the Torah says in chapter 19 that when God was destroying Saddam, God remembered Abraham and God sent out Lot. But what is striking to me is that Abraham never mentions Lot. Doesn't say a word about Lot. That'd be the first thing one would say, wouldn't it? You got a blood relative there who was initially your potential successor, no less, the son of your deceased brother. Isn't that the first thing you think about? No, Abraham says not a word about Lot. And he actually stops at 10. So I did want to pick up these questions next time. I'll stop here. If there are any comments or questions, I'll take them now. And if you want to send me an email, it's dsilveratrisha.org. I'll try to respond. But I have a couple I just, of minutes. Oh. I just had something about verse 21, the reference to Kila there. And it seems to me that uh, the Kula here, he's, he's saying basically um, destruction is what's going to happen. I'm leaving you now at 10. That's it. Goodbye. And I'm, uh, there's going to be destruction. Right. So you could, the, the question is, that's a good point over here. Right. I mean, it could be that. It could be that. It could be that the Chumash is signaling that even though God agrees if there are 50 righteous or 45 or whatever up to 10, perhaps the Chumash is signaling that my beloved reader, it's, it's not going to be any righteous there. There's one guy, he's not so righteous, but that's possible. It's also possible that the Chumash in using that, say, those two words, and that's a good point, is making the, is underscoring the point that what Avram's intention is, he hopes, is to undo the, 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 the kila of, 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 uh, of what God said, kalal earlier in, in when God said, if, if what I'm hearing is right, then Kalai will utterly destroy them. And Abraham's attempt actually is, is, to, is to undermine it. Right? So you, you, you can't just say Kalai. That's exactly his argument. 
because kala means they're all gone, suggesting that the righteous and the not righteous are all in the same boat. And that's exactly what he's what he's what he's fighting against. So perhaps you can interpret the kala and kila as moving in that direction. It's Abraham's attempt to under to to undermine what God had said. By the way, I did want to mention one extremely interesting medrash that I saw, and that is last the term. I did a session together with uh, my friend Nathaniel Berman. We teach the day together, Zohar, and the subject was God's anger. I came across an amazing medrash over here. Here's where actually the medrash talks about God's anger and the idea of God's, that once the anger gets out, there's no stopping it. It destroys the wicked and the righteous together. And there are three different views about exactly how that works. Right here, ha'af tisper, which means to, will you even destroy? And the Midrash, it sounds like the Zohar actually, ha'af from anger, will you let anger to destroy the tzaddik and the rasha? So here you actually have the Medrash, which exactly speaks to this question about God's anger and, and anger in general. And once anger is out there, it tends to be indiscriminate. Anyway, what else? Was okay, one, what, uh, just, yeah, God, uh, Abraham hooked God by shofet, by mishpat, but really what he got him to was being tzaddik. That's what he tried to do. He tried to get him not to actually administer justice, which would have been, okay, so you send forth those who are innocent and you, and you wipe out everybody else. That's but right. he actually tried to get a wider net of chesed. He did very well said, and God seems to go along with it. It's very striking because, as you say correctly, mishpat means the guilty are guilty and the innocent are innocent. Okay, maybe even the guilty, you take certain things into consideration. But fundamentally, what God says, what Abraham's asking for, and God seems to agree that if there are X number of righteous people or innocent people in the town, I will spare the entire town. Perhaps the idea, maybe we'll talk a little bit next week about that before we get to the substance of chapter 19, but perhaps the idea is that the 10 could influence the others. That's a possibility. Maybe, maybe this is actually the setup of the new world after the flood, that it's no longer actually administered by din. It's no longer administered by what? By din, by, by, by strict justice. Yeah, could be could be that with Abraham, who is really the new, one might say, creating a different kind of world, that there's a place for Chesed. The question is, of course, what exactly is the place and etc. But yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's like we have in the Book of Yonah, basically the same thing. Maybe they're all guilty, but otherwise, I have no world. You can't run the world that way. So the the, the question as to where we draw the lines, etc., is a very good question. But there, you're certainly correct in pointing out that what Abraham is asking for is more than strict justice. And what God seems to agree to is, let's put it this, possibly that if the 10 or 50 or whatever number could potentially influence the others, I'm not, remember, we're talking about God's intervention. We're not talking about what people, how people should administer justice. God is making an extraordinary, God has said to know I'm not getting involved, not destroying the world anymore. In this particular case, God feels compelled to enter into the fray. But perhaps when you have a true system of justice, there's no need for God to enter because God then relies upon human beings to administer justice. It's when human beings show themselves incapable of administering justice that God feels compelled to step in. But we'll continue with this next week. I think that's an interesting thought. All right, so we will uh, stop here then.
Any plans for after Pesach? Yes, after Pesach, I think we shall continue in some form. I'm thinking of focusing on Yitzchak, actually. I have a very good name for these. It's a mitzvah, I think, four times altogether between Pesach and, uh, and Shavuos during the Sphira. We have a whole program set up, but I think of course, if we focus on Yitzchak, I have a very nice name for the course. Alter Ego, A-L-T-A-R, Ego, Alter Ego. Anyway, so Binding of Isaac and but we'll see. I don't want to skip over these uh, these these chapters. We can't skip them. I mean, you got Avimelech, you have Yishmael, you have, and if we get. I like to get to the Akedah if it's possible. But I think we only meet. I think it's three more times. So we'll see as far as we we'll go as far as we can go, and we'll continue. This class will continue, and uh, yeah, and we'll see how, what we can do. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.